All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Are we ready in the back? Good to go? All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of the book of Proverbs. We left off basically completing chapter 14. So into 15 we go, which is part three of this section. This falls under the general heading, A Wise Son, Wise Ways to Live. So 15 will be the, uh, the next installment of that. Let's begin with an invocation and a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so in the previous section, chapter 14, we looked at uh, the theme of Christian wisdom, of slowing down, of being cautious, of being careful, of not following the heart or its natural impulses, because the heart is by nature sinful and unclean, and out of the heart of man flows all manner of wicked things, as our Lord Jesus teaches. So to be cautious and to understand our propensities and our sinful propensities in specific as we navigate life. And then we had several meditations on blessings, temporal and eternal, for faithfulness. And ways that we find that, I mean, it's always in the deepest spiritual sense true. On more superficial senses, you might go, well, I don't know what kind of blessing it is to be martyred, let's say. But of course, in the deepest sense, that's a profound blessing. That's a, that's a highest honor to be conformed into the martyrdom of Jesus. But from an earthly kind of angle, you go, I don't know if that really, you know, is the way I want to go. <laughs> So we've played with those kinds of themes of the temporal blessings of faithfulness, even sometimes those blessings being crosses. And, and, you know, it gets to be kind of fun to try to tease out in what sense is it a cross and what sense is it a blessing. And then likewise, looking forward to the reward we have, knowing that our righteousness is in Christ, And it's his righteousness imputed to us. And we simply receive that by faith. That faith itself is a gift given to us from God. We can look forward to the judgment. We can look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, knowing we're clothed in his righteousness and will be transformed into that righteousness. And just as he bestows everything upon us by grace, he's going to graciously reward the good works that he has caused us both to will and to do. So as Augustine says, he crowns his own works within us. So we meditated on those kinds of themes. Just to get a running start, if we pick up at 29, we'll hit some, and I think maybe I didn't get to the last couple verses of 14. Let's see. So at verse 29 of chapter 14, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So again, speed, hasty, quick-tempered, and foolishness connected 30 a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh but envy makes the bones rot 
So again, slow to anger in 23, tranquil of heart in 30. This idea of slow, peaceful. Isn't that a great line? Envy makes the bones rot. And that masquerades sometimes in a in an maybe an over endowed sense of fairness. That's not fair. That can be a manifestation of this idea of uh, envy making the bones rot. Because sometimes a question of fairness isn't really a question of fairness or justice. It's a question of envy or jealousy. Okay, so that's, uh, again, Proverbs 14, verse 30. Verse 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Did we do this one? I don't remember that we did it. I must have put my note down. I've got this little, this fail-safe method of a sticky note with an arrow. I mean, it could never go wrong. It could never get me off at all. So okay, well maybe maybe this is a newer one then. I don't I don't know that we've uh, I don't know that we've covered thirty one and following. Let's act like we haven't. If it's if <laughs> if it starts to sound familiar to me, I'll know we did. All right, thirty one. So whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Why do you think that that's the case? Okay, yeah, you don't have this, this. The poor man is a creature of God. You're not valuing that which God Himself has created. And so far as the poor man bears the image of God, you're also besmirching and disrespecting that image. Yeah, so that l- lends itself to compassion. Of course, uh, James has some wonderful statements about the poor man. And in James, probably hinting at the poor man, like capital T, the capital P poor, capital M man being Christ and being synonymous, the poor man in your midst, kind of riffing off of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25, whatever you have done to the least of these my brothers is specifically whatever you have done to the least of these my Christians, you have done unto me, and so Jesus, in fact that, gosh I wish I remembered the line, that worked itself into our hymnody from last week that Christ deigns to hide himself amongst the poor and lowly in our midst. That we might have the blessing and benefit of doing good unto him, precisely as we do good unto those others. So all of that in this vein, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. And of course, a poor man you can't oppress because he, uh, can't, he doesn't have recourse. What's he going to do? He's not going to hire a lawyer and sue you. Not going to hire a bunch of bodyguards and get them to beat you up. A poor man has no recourse, so it's easy pickings and easy to victimize him. That's the nature of the fallen world. So to insult a man in such a state is to insult, or to oppress a man in such a state is to insult his maker. All right, what's the next clause? But he who is generous to the needy honors him. That is, honors the maker. So, by our conduct with regard to the poor, we can insult the maker or honor the maker. How we treat our brother. 
And specifically in view is our brother in Christ. Of course, generally speaking, we love all people and serve all people, but of first importance and first emphasis are the household of God. All right, on to 32. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing. Yeah, it's the evil itself that tends to lead to a man's undoing. Often ostensibly and temporally, if not that, then certainly in terms of the judgment and eternality, eternal consequences of his actions. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing. But the righteous finds refuge in his death. So the righteous is safe and safe even in death. Now that can only make sense if you're a Christian. (laughs) Again, emphasizing that Proverbs is a thoroughly Christian book and its whole focus and frame is on Christ and the fear of Christ and that is faith and walking in the wisdom of Christ. And here no different than that evil doing ultimately bears its own fruit that someone must eat. Or as your mom probably said, you made your bed, now lie in it. Right? So that, that's the kind of thing of like evil brings with it its own consequence. And God even punishes, according to Romans, even punishes sin with sin. So sometimes you go like, well, where's the punishment for that? or that guy's you know, transgression or whatever the case may be he just keeps on doing it and you're making a category error because you're thinking he's getting away with it or you're thinking he's getting something good when in fact he's getting something bad and that's the punishment itself that he's bound t- more and more tightly in the chains and bondage of sin So the wicked being overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finding refuge in his death. You can take this in a number of ways. You can take it in the sense of he finds righteousness throughout his life. Even death is, um, or I'm sorry, he finds, uh, what's the exact word here, refuge throughout his life, but even in death or especially in death. Or you can take it in a, an overlapping kind of sense. That for the righteous person dwelling in a wicked world, death is a relief. And you've probably had those thoughts. That's even part of our meditations when saints die, is that they've gone to rest from their labors. And there's a blessedness. Probably one of the easiest arguments to make that the saints who go to heaven aren't looking down through a glass floor and watching everything we do is uh, that would pretty much take the heaven out of heaven, wouldn't it? (laughs) So there, I mean, there's an awareness of the struggles in a general sense that the people of God continue to undergo down here. There's an awareness of the ongoing warfare to be sure, but there's not this sort of like acute and specific knowledge of persons and events. Uh, Otherwise, there would be no refuge in death. But here there is a refuge in death. It's 
you know, who will save me, St. Paul asks, from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ my Lord. Death is a salvation in that it is cutting off or circumcising from us our sinful flesh, our sinful nature. So, I mean, the, like all of this sort of instantaneous with death, the death is, Jesus teaches this when he says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So when you die, it's not you that dies. When you die, it's the flesh that dies. And for the first moment, you will feel and be what it is to feel and be a saint. And a saint through and through. A human being without sin. More yourself than ever before. More human in that sense than ever before. Although the finality of our humanity being accomplished is in the resurrection, because our body has to follow. All right, so yeah, I think that's probably overdoing it. Refuge in his death. Verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding. But it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Yeah, so it's interesting because you have, I mean, what is the contrast here? And my best guess at it is that the contrast, I mean, it's certainly not wrong. It just may not be absolutely right. So if you all see something clearer here, let me know. But I think the contrast is that the wisdom resting in the heart of a man of understanding. So the wisdom is there, but it's unknown. That's the and then that's going to be contrast with the wisdom making itself known even in the midst of fools. So wisdom of itself, you don't really look at a person and say, I bet that person's wise. You certainly can't do that if your definition of wisdom is the scriptural understanding of wisdom. Like faithfulness and knowledge of God's word and obedience to God's word. Like if we define wisdom in that specifically Christian sense, and we should here, then you can't look at a person and know if they're wise or not. So it has this hidden quality. And yet as one speaks and conducts oneself, that wisdom becomes known even amongst fools, even amongst people who don't really have a clue what wisdom is. kind of forget what that principle is. Probably a good thing I've forgotten it. I'd start using it. But where you're too stupid to know you're stupid? <laughs> What's that called? Do you know? I saw a hand. I thought I saw a hand in the back. I can't remember what that's called right now. Oh, well. Probably for the best. If that gets trained in my mind, then I'm driving down the freeway and I'm just thinking that, you know. Okay, so... I think that that's the contrast. Anybody see anything? Um, anybody want to make an argument that there's something more pressing or more evident in that? Uh, are we running a microphone today? I'll try to. If not, I'll just try to. I'll see one. Oh, there it is. Yeah, going back, when you were talking about the saints, I know the Lutheran Church is one of the few Protestants that even acknowledge that the saints are part of the church after they move on. But um, from my Catholic background, I just wanted to can, um, point uh, some distinctions with the error, what the Catholics went too far and took that doctrine. I know we are not to pray to them, but you did say that they are aware. So is there a 
is there like a line there between, you know, a thin line? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Trying to think in the scriptures. I think there's only, maybe the vicar elect can help me out here. I think in the scriptures there's only one example of prayer to a saint. And I should put that in quotes. Because it's raising Samuel <laughs> from the dead. <laughs> it doesn't go well. So, where, yeah, where the, where the dead are apparently raised and spoken to. Um, yeah, who knows what that is, if it's an apparition or really him. So, tongue-in-cheek, there's no example of it in the scripture. You know, where, where this largely comes about, um, so as the, as the gospel is going north, they're meeting with uh, barbarian kinds of peoples, to use a really generalized term, much of which culture is based in uh, respect for and even worship of your ancestors. So you'd like, you know, carry around like a bone of your dad and think that that was, you know, I mean, this is like a deep part of your sense of spirituality and piety and who you are and your people and your fathers and, you know, various versions of going to your fathers upon death and trying to live faithfully unto your fathers and trying to follow their code of uh, ethics or morality. So definitely uh, forms a religion. And as the church went north, there's all kinds of accommodation to culture that's made. And one of those is, well, don't worship, you know, these hairy pagans who prided themselves in murdering each other in the battlefield. Uh, we should be looking to the saints, our true fathers in the faith. And don't be wearing their bones and trinkets, but how about these bones and trinkets of the real saints? And so you can see how there's kind of this accommodation and transfer over. That's where a lot of this stuff kind of starts. And the, the sort of idea of the, the saints... Um, being the true father. So if you would speak to your father before, you know, your earthly father who's died and gone to Valhalla or whatever, and you would speak to him on the eve of a battle, well, now you would speak to a saint instead and pray for the patron saint of, uh, you know, lopping off heads with your axe or whatever the case may be. So that's, that's a lot of where that originates. And then it ties in with some particular problems that the church is, uh, a, the, the church has to address, especially in times of apostasy. So um, when, you've got, when you've got threat, physical threat that's coming in, you have Christians that apostatize, then how do you bring them back in? And how is that fair to somebody who, you know, I don't know, some woman in the church who lost her husband who refused to apostatize. Now, this guy said, ah, yeah, I don't believe in Christ. And then the threat's gone. They says, oh, yeah, I do. Let me back into the church. You know, that kind of thing had to be addressed. And so how that gets addressed with, is with this sense of a satisfaction under the church has to be made. So you need to be on probation. You need to be in the church but not communing for a certain period of time or something like that. From that, which is, I think, a relatively innocent pastoral circumstance, and I certainly, I certainly sympathize with the pastoral circumstance, and I would probably end up being on the side of, yes, you have to do something. You have to do something as a community. But what gets born from this, I mean, Satan grabs hold of that and just runs with it. So this idea, that's the birth of the idea of satisfaction. So now you have to make up for it, not under the church, but unto God. You have to pay this temporal consequence of your sin, okay? 
And then you've got the saints who are saints because they have all these better work, uh, these good works, and they're better than you. Otherwise, how are they saints? And so then the treasury of the saints, they've got all these good works built up. And if you pray to them, they can send you these good works to cancel your satisfactions or debts. And as this just kind of rolls along, all of a sudden we're in medieval Rome or medieval uh, Holy Roman Empire kind of thing. Right. We're in uh, Luther's time. And you go, how did the church get here? So that's. I mean, it's probably broad enough to be largely an error, but hopefully we'll give you a sense and a gist for how the saints come to be seen in such a way that, you know, you just you go back and you look in the Bible and you're like, it's not there. So where did it come from? How did it come about? And then, so in practical terms, I mean, why would you pray to a saint when you can pray directly to the Lord Jesus? Why would you I mean, the, even, even through Jesus, we're granted access to the Father, to pray our Father. Some of what ties in here in the medieval period is that Jesus is depicted, especially thinking like rampant plagues, rampant warfare. I mean, the kind of thing that is, it's, it's impossible to even wrap your mind around because we live in such a safe, cushy time, relatively speaking. World wars may be in 20th century notwithstanding, but you've got like black plague and that kind of stuff going on and Islam coming in and just destroying everything and murdering hundreds of millions. I, I mean, you could just got... So the idea that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, <laughs> that's a pretty tough sell in the medieval church. It's a pretty easy sell for cushy American Christians, but in the medieval church, you'd be like, yeah, right. What becomes popular piety there is that Jesus is a wrathful, vindictive judge whom you cannot speak to, and he represents the Father. So the Father's like, don't even think about it. And so instead of going to, like, judgmental, wrathful Jesus who's likely to smite your village, uh, you should probably go to his mom. She's nicer. And the saints know what it's like to be sinful as, as you, and so it's better to go to them and just not mess with the... So that's where a lot of that piety develops. And then over the course of church history, it's kind of like, uh, sometimes we use this phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, that uh, the law of prayer and the um, law of belief or the law of faith. So like these two things, like what you believe and what you do... Um, to make it sure, uh, yeah. In the original formulation, it's statua. So what you do ends up forming what you believe. And we would have some Lutheran quibbles with that, to be sure. But the point is that, well, in our context, if you worship like a Baptist, it's not long before you're going to become a Baptist. And so if you worship in, um, if you if you're popular piety is this sort of devotion to the saints and prayer to the saints. It's not long before that becomes doctrine and before scriptural argumentation is put on ad hoc after the fact. That's a lot of the development of error within the history of the church is first popular piety goes awry and then later on it's formalized into doctrine. We see this in our own times with um, uh, Mary as the mediatrix and co-redemptrix. So it is very common popular piety in Roman Catholicism right now to call her these things. 
the church and its the the Roman Catholic Church and its structure via its you know ex cathedra from the seat authority of the Pope has never made any such decree. So it's not binding on anyone. But popular piety is swelling, and there are movements in this direction. And probably in our lifetime, if not uh, the next generations, um, it will be formalized doctrinally that Mary is the mediatrix and the co-redemptrix. That's just wild. That's just wild stuff. But you can see present tense how popular piety gains momentum and then becomes doctrine. This is almost always a product of the times. Why, why would you think that right... Well, I should say the 20th century is when this all started. The 20th century and early 21st century. Why right now? Why since Vatican II, 1950s? Why now must we raise Mary to this semi-divine status? What's going on in the world, the broader world? Feminism. Feminism. I mean, none of this stuff is like... It's like a bunch of pastors sitting around studying the Bible together and going, oh my gosh, look what the church has missed. God's word says this. Let's get this corrected. And that, is, that it never happens. What happens is the, the spirit of the age infects everyone, including the church, and the church starts to sway, and that sway is in terms of popular piety and then formal doctrine, and it's not until then you have someone who points out the formal doctrines in error that anything is actually done about it, or there's any kind of confrontation of, a, of an error that's just been slowly brewing and rotting until it's... Uh, fermented stinkiness. Yeah, please. I've heard it said that in the early Roman church, um, when Christianity was taking hold, that they had a population that was used to a pantheon of gods. And they were used to having uh, female gods. And this made it more palatable to kind of insinuate Mary and insinuate these saints as they went along. Not that it was doctrine, but it, you know. Well, I mean, I, I get that that would be plausible, but I think the historical fact is that they didn't. All of this stuff about Mary is recent. She was called the Theotokos. I don't, I don't know where you find like your first exigent prayer to Mary or something, liturgical prayer to Mary. It's probably the 4th or 5th century. It's late. Devotion, I mean, devotion to Mary. And then sometimes you have also, though, like, like if you pay attention to our hymns, we've got a hymn to the cross. Is that idolatry or poetry? Clearly poetry. Nobody understands that we're actually praying to the cross. We've got in our hymnody at least one hymn that addresses Mary. Is that poetry or are we actually suddenly praying to Mary? It's, it's a poetic way of speaking. And, there, and scriptures are filled with this kind of poetic way of speaking. So I think, I think even in when you look at the early church record, references to Mary or piety to Mary in what se- or addresses to Mary, like I said, I think the earliest is probably the 4th or 5th century. I could, who knows, I could be off on that. But you have to ask yourself, like, okay, is this an actual prayer? Or is this a devotional kind of assertion? 
you know, if I were to if I were to say in you know in, in Bible class, if I were to get all wound up and say, you know, Saint Peter who um, holds the keys and uh, saw fit to lead the church, and, you know, that kind of thing. Am I? Are you thinking that I'm suddenly addressing him with some kind of serious prayer? Or am I just reflecting poetically with an address to Peter? So anyway, I, all that to say. It's not this Marian devotion, like certainly calling her co-redemptrix or co-mediatrix. That language is not there. Maybe you find something like that in uh, maybe the medieval period. Luther has a super high view of Mary and doesn't come anywhere close to that. Okay, please. That is going on in our present day with like the Virgin de Guadalupe and all of that stuff, right? So, I mean, that's just very clearly, hey, these people worship goddesses. Let's give them a goddess that's good for them to worship. Pastor. Yes, sir. Uh, One little wrinkle, though, I think needs to be added into this uh, regarding Mary. And that is, and I don't know when this started. It may have started at the beginning uh, of of uh, when Christ was born, the Catholics have always felt that Mary was sinless, hence Christ was sinless. In other words, if Mary had sin in her life, Christ would have had sin in his life. So she was holy and immaculately conceived from the, you know, uh, from the beginning, from their viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it makes sense that, in a sense, that she would be a deity, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, even even where you find in the earliest formulations of the sinlessness of Mary, um, whether that's the, an immaculately conceived Mary or other, uh, there's no assertion that she is a deity in any way. And I think that the Roman Catholics would say that they're stopping short of that. So it is, it is nuanced. And, and some of it's just pure scholasticism, too. I mean, the Ro- modern Roman Catholicism, what is it? Uh, yeah, okay, so they say, we're not, um, we worship God with, uh, or we honor God with latria, Mary with hyperdulia, and the saints with dulia. So even though it's like this language of we pray to, we honor, I think they stop short of saying we worship. It's like all sophistry. You're bowing at this altar. What are you doing? Well, it's latria because it's directed to God. You're bowing at this other um, altar with Mary on it. What are you doing? Oh, well, it's not latria, so it's okay. It's hyperdulia. Oh, you're bowing at this altar to, you know, Saint whoever. Uh, oh, but it's not, a, it's not the same. We're not doing Latria or Hyperdulia. We're just doing Dulia here. So it's just a bunch of sophistry and smoke and mirrors, too. Scholasticism in that sense. There is, and gosh, don't ask me to look for my sources because I don't want to, uh, and it would take way too long. But even amongst Lutherans, the, the Orthodox Lutherans of um, you know the 16th century, 17th century, I think that it's permissible among them, at least casually permissible among them, to hold to uh, the sinlessness of Mary. They just don't care. Nobody's deifying her. Nobody's worshiping her. Nobody's calling her a co-mediatrix, co-redemptrix. I mean, there is prayer to her, and there is this sort of treasury of the saints going on. I mean, these these are problems. But 
they're not viewed even at the time of the Lutheran Reformation as problems intimately woven in with the idea that she's sinless. So I think I think at times you could hold that and nobody's going to excommunicate you. So I don't know about today. Anybody want to try? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But you know, I, and where I've always kind of fallen on it is with respect to uh, the patriarchs of our church and with respect to men much more learned, uh, wise. Um. Where in Luke's gospel in the Magnificat, she refers to God as her savior. Well, saving her from what? And if you're going to do a sinless Mary, then you can't have Mary dying, properly speaking. So you have to do a bunch of shenanigans there, too. And it's kind of like, you know, it's like you tell one lie and you got to keep on lying. You do one little bit of shenanigans and the shenanigans just spread out like spider webs. Shenanigans is the technical theological term. So where you kind of have to like, you see this sort of like covering of all these bases occur. I don't know. It color me suspicious. So I think when she said that God is her savior, um, she's counting herself as a, as a sinner. Christ can receive his sinless humanity through other mechanisms, if we want to be crass about it, including this mechanism. I'm God. I can do whatever I want to do. <laughs> If the father wants to take a sinner and conceive uh, a sinless human being from that sinner, can God not do that? God, like, oh dear, that's that's the one bridge too far. Now, I don't know. Do we beat that one to death? Um, the only, you made a comment at the beginning. It says, there's only one time I know of uh, praying to a saint, and it's not really praying to a saint would be, King Saul asking to see Samuel. Yeah, yeah. And he was unfaithful, it says in the end. So he was... Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and he's doing it through a witch. I mean, the whole thing was tongue-in-cheek, right? Yeah. 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 I guess if you want to talk to a saint by going to a witch, having the witch conjure up. And who knows? I mean, there's... There's speculation as to whether it's not... Whether it's really Samuel or just some evil spirit pretending to be Samuel. I mean, who knows? Who knows? But, yeah. Okay, please. This just hit me, the third word of Christ from the cross, behold your son and behold your mother, he says to his disciple. So her function as the mother of God may have ceased then. He was handing her over to the disciple. I've never thought of it that way, but anyway, for what it's worth. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember one line from a Luther sermon where... I'm trying to think of how to do this efficiently. So he's got, he's got this one line that if we won't have um, Mary as our mother, then neither will we have Christ as our brother. And he's riffing on this idea that what Christ, at least part of what Christ is doing, I don't think, he, I don't think Luther thinks this is exhaustive, but part of what Christ is doing is taking the disciple, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom he loves, which is John, but namelessly so, part out of literary device that we would see ourselves as that one following all the way to the foot of the cross and there we receive I mean in a sense we receive um, Mary as our mother even as we receive God as our father and even as we receive Jesus as our brother so we're and that makes sense too I don't know 
my brain's working too tangentially and not simply enough today, but there's a in the ESV, for example, it says, and from that, something to the effect of, and from that hour forth, he took her into his own home. And that can be true, and in other places, that kind of translation of the language is acceptable, but the language itself is more ambiguous. He took her unto himself, or unto his own. Could very easily be, he took her as his own mother. Like, that more than the sense than, um, you know... He had to go visit Ikea and get a spare room for her. Especially true when you follow the history of John and realize he didn't just sit in a house happily ever after with Mary there. Like he served in Ephesus for a long time and obviously exile and other drama. All that to say that Luther, Luther looks at that and I think that this is right. I think that we honor Mary above all other um, saints and personages. There's, there's none higher because she is the Theotokos, the God-bearer, though she herself a human, but bears the divine Son of God. That puts her on a level that none of us can claim. And in fact, all of us are sort of typologically reflective of that. Um, that Christ would be, you know, within us. We, around Advent and Christmas, we talk this way, that we would be impregnated with Christ through the Word. Um, that Christ would dwell within us. But all of that's a type of what literally happened with Mary. So in one of the hymns we sing, um, in our Lutheran hymnal, and we've sung it for a long time, um, Oh, higher than the seraphim, more glorious than the cherubim, sing his praises, alleluia. But we're talking about Mary. And that's literally what the words are. So in the hymn, there's a claim that on account of her role with Christ and Christ being incarnate of her flesh, as the creeds say, uh, that she has now been elevated above the cherubim and seraphim. And I think that there, I think there's, a, I, there's at least a good case. Even if you disagree or you say, oh, whoa, that's too much. Well, don't sing that hymn anymore. But, uh, but then you've got to make the case why that isn't so. Because a case can very much be made that the flesh of Mary is the flesh seated right now on the heavenly throne above all cosmic powers. And then also likewise, um, are you aware of this motif that in like the book of First Kings and Second Kings, probably in the Samuels too, I don't know. Shoot, I don't know. I think it's first Solomon, the son of David, that um, his mother is always spoken of with his kingship. And then from that point forward in the scriptures, it's always the king and his mother announced. Now, the Roman Catholics exploit this fact typologically um, to try to make more of Mary than they should. But we shouldn't make less of Mary than we should. That's just the opposite error. So what does the scripture through direct statement and through type present to us? And that is, that is one of the Old Testament types of Mary is the mother of the king who sort of like is right next to the throne. So I don't think we can be opposed to any of that. And Mary herself, uh, as icon of the church, is represented in you know, Revelation 12, this woman with the um, crown of 12 stars. With the, I think the, can't remember what's under her feet. I think the sun's like, the moon's under her feet or something like that. But that's, I mean, that's Mary and the church. So there's no other way. 
um, to see it because she is the one in 12 who gives birth to the Messiah. So, yeah, you've got a really high view of Mary in the scriptures. And you've got a really high view of Mary in the early church and in the Lutherans, uh, the Magisterial Lutheran Reformation. And I think, if anything, we've sort of bordered on losing that off to the other side of... Because when the heresy is coming up that she's the mediatrix and the co-redemptrix, we don't want to just leap into the opposite error of, no, she's nothing. She's just, you know, she's just like you or me. Well, that's not true. (laughs) You know? She's a little different than you and me. Um, so, yeah, there's those, uh, there's those two sides. And the Bible, the biblical teachings right there in the middle. Okay, well, that was a long tangent. So, we've got a couple minutes. Let's just finish out 14 if we can. Thirty-four. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Ooh, isn't that true? Now, disturbingly, there are many Christians who deny this, but to have a nation that is relatively more righteous than another has ostensible benefits and the Lord exalts it. So I think, again, I don't care if, if America is a Christian nation or if it's a deistic nation. I don't care for the sake of this argument. But America in its founding documents honors God. And even if that's God generically, the basic morality of early America is natural law morality. And the basic presupposition is that there's a God to whom we're all accountable. Right? Now, we can quibble about that and say, well, that's a long way away from Christianity. Okay, fine, whatever. But for the purposes, it's following the natural law, understanding that there's a creator to whom we're accountable. If you want to ask why America has prospered, that's why. Because the scriptures can't be broken. Because righteousness exalts a nation. Even if that righteousness is a civic righteousness and a relative righteousness to other nations, it's true. And what's happened to our nation? As we've turned from righteousness, we are instantaneously and at the same time turning into decline, aren't we? It's right in front of our nose. Sin is a reproach to any people. And eventually, God, out of a sense of relative justice, remember when he says that, uh, remember when Jesus says, I can't remember, I think it's like Chorazin and Bethsaida, these, these cities, and he says, uh, woe to you, um, Sodom and Gomorrah will stand up against you in the judgment. Right? We were destroyed for less. <laughs> so at a certain point in time, God has to, uh, God will and has to because he is good and just. Um, he will visit the sins of a, of a people, of a nation, upon them. And that's really what's uh, at play in our own present times. So should we be praying for faithful rulers? Absolutely. Godly rulers? Absolutely. Uh, our first prayer is for Christian rulers, of course. What's she going to pray for? A Muslim ruler? You want to convert or die? I mean, what do you want in a ruler? So, um, yeah. 
So we should be praying for Christians. And if not Christians, we should be praying then secondarily for uh, leaders who will lead in accordance with the natural law. Which is to say the law of God, the essence of the Ten Commandments. And this is the Fourth Commandment stuff. So you can go to, if you think this is Rhodey's like... Rhodey's wild fantasy of Christian nationalism. Uh, go read the large catechism, um, Fourth Commandment. There you'll get a full whiff of, uh, and more because it's Luther, of, of what I'm serving. All right, so righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And again, just one more uh, note on this. So the goodness, you know, individual goodness is important because it's part of a larger goodness or larger righteousness. Individual sin is important because it's part of a larger corporate sinfulness. So being righteous, avoiding sin are good not only for you, but for others. And that's a theme that has... uh, recurred in the Proverbs is that walking in wisdom not foolishness, life not death, righteousness not sin is a blessing not just to you personally but to all the people around you family, workers but also nation so there's incentive to be upright and do the right thing, be wise because it redounds far more than just to you All right, then the final clause, but his wrath falls on the one who acts shamefully. So, of course, God has wrath, and that wrath falls on the one who acts shamefully. The Bible's uh, history of that, even in the New Testament. Remember uh, Annas and Sapphira, who say, we're going to sell our property and give everything, and then they hold back a portion of it. It's not that the Holy Spirit required them to give everything. It's that they said they were going to give everything and didn't. So they lied, and the Holy Spirit strikes them dead. So the wrath of God, even Old Testament, New Testament, abides on those who act shamefully. And of course, that's impetus for us all to humble ourselves before him and repent, fear the Lord, receive his forgiveness, receive his wisdom granted us in Christ. That's it. Lord be with you.